Live from the Great White North, this is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Pod. What's up? It's February 13th, 2021. And it's an exciting, it's like Christmas today because two of my largest holdings and favorite Canadian companies just released earnings. So we're going to talk about that really quickly. And then we are also going to talk about 10 metrics that Simon and I kind of always look at. You know, they don't tell the whole story necessarily, but they're a good screening mechanism and can help you find from a qualitative, uh, sorry, a quantitative perspective what might be attractive for a great business? So, Simon, what's going on? I know you, uh, you're you a little injured right now, but uh, you're trucking along in, on the podcast. We appreciate you. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm doing all right. I ended up at the emergency, nothing too serious this week. Um, so I'm back home and ready to record. I was able to, to work on some things uh, for the podcast uh, this week because nothing else to do. So it should be a fun episode. The commitment level unmatched. All right, so let's get let's get into it. Uh, Constellation Software. Uh, can we just have a moment for CEO Mark Leonard? This guy's the man, the wizard, mysterious wizard man with only one photo of him on the internet. Uh, he's he's doing what he always does. They just delivered Q4. Revenue is up fourteen percent. This is on a year over year basis. Revenue is up fourteen percent. Cash from operations up fifty five percent, and free cash flow was up 68% to $989 million. They are one quarter away from a trailing 12 months of a billion in free cash flows. Uh, I also want to give an update on the Topicus spin-out. That's their Netherlands-based company. It's kind of like Constellation Europe. They did list it, and I told you I'd give you an update. Shares are officially trading on the TSX Venture earlier this month. They listed for $65 a share, and you got two for every Constellation share. So think of that as a nice, fat $130 dividend. It uh, currently trades up a little bit from IPO price at $70. Uh, I've been getting lots of questions about what I'm doing with the shares. I'm doing pretty much nothing. I'm going to continue to add to Constellation uh, and just hold on to Topicus for now. That's uh, ticker Topicus is T-O-I on the TSX Venture. Uh, it's Brookfield news. What else? It's a Canadian investor podcast. We talk about Brookfield a lot and Brookfield is doing lots of stuff. So do you want to talk about two of the items there on your list, Simon? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so one of the, there's been some interesting news. So Braden, I'll talk about uh, Brookfield asset management after I'm done, but, uh, two of the, um, the affiliates, if you'd like, I never know what to call them, but uh, some of their subsidiaries there you go um i was looking for the word so first one is uh, brookfield infrastructure partners um some of you might have seen in the news they made a hostile takeover offer for interpipeline ipl is the ticker they're also listed on the uh, tsx um, they already own nine, 19 percent of the company they offered a 17 to 18 dollars a share um so they actually had been in talks with uh with IPL to uh, 
buy them out uh, recently and the talks didn't really go well. Uh, basically, Brookfield has a certain value that they're giving IPL and IPL is thinking that they should be worth more than that. And Brookfield's reasoning is like, okay, yeah, you may have a lot of growth projects, but you're kind of overlooking the current environment when it comes to uh, pipelines and the interest in that industry and the capital that is available. Um, so, Seymour, not to mention too, it's also a, a premium to their current stock price correct yeah exactly it's yeah. quite a nice premium so the shares pop 30 percent on thursday um so we'll see what kind of happens with that but that's a classic b brookfield move i have to say so it's they, so they tried classic to, <laughs> they tried to really you know negotiate something uh probably in good faith obviously i was not in, involved in those discussion in the rooms and everything that happened there um and it didn't go the way and they see a certain value attached to that so they made a hostile offer they control they own a big chunk of the company already so it'll be interesting whether it goes through or not um but yeah, just kind of keep an eye on that if you're Brookfield Infrastructure Partners because it would be a pretty big deal if they do they do purchase um, IPL. Um, aside from that, I had some people tweeting at me. I'm wondering why B, B, uh, Brookfield Renewable uh, Corporation shares were down a bit more this week compared to the BP uh, Limited Partners partnership shares um so the reason for that the reason the bpc shares went down is because uh, brookfield decided to issue uh, do an offering of 15 million shares at an average price of 51.50 us dollars a share um so that's why that the share price actually came down closer to that i think right now it's about 50 50 um us um i think actually personally it's a really good move from them because they're actually seeing that the bp shares have quite the run-up they're probably more overvalued compared to the limited partnership shares. So when I see a company issuing shares when the stock price is really high, capitalizing on that, I think that's always a great idea because you get more cash without a lot of dilution. So it's really the best case scenario if you ask me when you issue shares. And they'll probably be using that, I'm assuming, to uh, you know for new projects, but also potential acquisitions as as they do right so um i'll let you talk about uh, brookfield asset management now yeah sure just listening to those things you're talking about never bet against bruce flat i mean the guy is a machine he basically does very contrarian things and it's been nothing but money for brookfield so betting against bruce flat is just a bad idea uh so the 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 mothership Brookfield Asset Management, the one that I own, they just reported Q4. They generated a record 3.1 billion in what they call cash available for distribution or reinvestment. That's typically the terms they use on their their statements. It's basically just cash flow metric. Uh, they this is a quote from Bruce Flat. We ended the year with our best quarter ever. Reflected the continued growth of our asset management franchise. And the resiliency of our underlying business. He then went and gave on some pretty good guidance for 2021 and uh, their ongoing investments. I do want to mention something that kind of flew under the radar is they sold the N-Wave business, which made me sad because, I mean, they probably got a really good price for it because it has the, the environmental sustainability spin on it but n-wave does like deep lake cooling and geothermal and district heating in, in large cities they have a 
tons. Like he, if you live in Toronto, you probably know about N Wave. And it's kind of sad because that was a really cool, innovative business. They're basically grabbing really cold water from Lake Ontario and then pumping district cooling through the buildings in the summer. Um, really innovative, really cool company. And uh, they probably got a pretty good price for it. So, I mean, again, don't bet against flat. I do want to say one hilarious story uh, before we get on to these 10 metrics that me and Simon are always looking at when we first look at a company, but really quick story. My buddy Cortez, <laughs> his girlfriend had bought a ton of Tilray stock at $5 a couple months ago. And weed stocks have gone absolutely bananas. It's like October, 2018 all over again. Uh, and he's, he asked me what I think they should do. And I'm like, well, I mean, they could just like triple from here in the mania. Who knows? But I mean, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. So just be, just be careful. Um, he basically went on to say they sold the shares on Wednesday at $63, uh, 63.91. And the next day, the very next day, Shares fell 50% and closed the week out down 54%. I mean, talk about timing. And you can't time the market. Sometimes you can get lucky. But with stuff like this, like, you get lucky like that. You make a boatload of money. Don't look at the stock price after because it could triple from there. And then you'll, like, kick yourself even though it might have been the right decision. You know, like, pop a bottle of champagne, celebrate it as a victory, and move on, or you can get super lucky like this. But I just thought that was quite a good story, and doing the right thing pays off more often than not. I mean, sure, it could have tripled last week. Like, who knows with these things right now? But it's just a reminder that out, like, be careful and and make decisions that just make sense. And more often than not, doing the right thing over a long period of time will yield good results. So um, I know that's the first time you're hearing this story, Simon, because it just happened, but yeah, they made so yeah, much money. Time. Like, awesome for them. That's man. great. Yeah, great for them. And there's a last news story I wanted to, to talk about. So it made news headlines on Monday. Um, so it came out uh, in a reg- regulatory filing that uh, Tesla bought $1.5 billion worth of Bitcoin. Um, so that came out the news on Monday. And obviously... When the news came out, uh, Bitcoin jumped about 17%, I think 17, 18%, and it's actually been up more than that for the week. Um, The reason why it's pretty significant is because obviously Tesla has a lot of visibility around the world. It's a huge company. Like whether you think Tesla is overvalued or not, doesn't matter. People still listen to Elon a whole lot. And what's also, I think in my view, this kind of gives a lot of credibility to Bitcoin for other corporations because you may have had CEOs or executives that were looking at it, may have been interested, but they didn't want to bring it up because they might have been afraid to be laughed at or turned down. Well, now it makes it a lot easier to just kind of be like, well, you know, here's an option. Uh, 
Elon did do it with Tesla, so it's kind of hard to be laughing at them when Elon is doing something. So it'll be interesting just uh, in the next uh, couple months to the next year or two just to see if there's a really big pickup by corporation uh, to put a percentage of their treasuries into uh, Bitcoin or cryptocurrency. And it's important to know, too, that um, the companies that have done it so far, they, they're not putting like 20% of their treasuries. They're usually putting... Uh, like I've seen so far about like 5%, I think is what Tesla had done on the cash on hand. It was 9%, I think. Was it? 9. 9%, yeah. yeah. It's And it's not cash that they need to do their operations. And that's really important to understand as well, because that would have been, in my opinion, pretty reckless uh, from them to do that. So um, it'll be interesting how it plays out in the corporate world. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm going to... We're going to see probably other companies do this. I, I just don't see... I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, that's the that's the bet I would put on is that more companies do this. How many? I don't I don't know. I mean, right when these things happen, you know, you don't get the headlines that every S and P company is going to start doing this. It's like no, that's not <laughs> no. Like no, some sure, but uh, of course, everything gets blown out of proportion at the time. So, just uh, yeah, something to keep an eye on. Exactly, it 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 is something to keep an eye on because. It is quite significant. It does give it some legitimacy whether you like what Elon's doing at Tesla or not. So, yeah, it's a good point. All right, let's let's look at some metrics here. This is a good base, whether you want to use them for screening purposes. I'm an engineer. I'm a math nerd. I do like this stuff. I do like quant models. But again... Something I want to specify here, and it's a mistake that I made. So learn from mistakes that I made when I started investing. Is that I would make pure, almost like pure pay, play investing decision based on numbers. And numbers is the greatest place to start, and I still do that. It's part of my process. But it's just the start. You got to then dig into the business Find out more, dig a little deeper, follow, find out the qualitative measures if they have a moat. You know, do, do that kind of due diligence as well. Understand the company. But these are like, if I'm starting to research a company, these are a great place to start. So, Simon, you want to kick it off. You have some more, more obscure ones. You wanted to talk about ones that we don't always talk about, which is probably a good idea. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like Braden said, I think it's it's really important just to take him into context. And I've made some of those same mistakes as Braden just said, just kind of looking at certain things like price to book or price to earnings or whatever the metrics are and just base your decision on that. Um, it's really you have to look at the bigger picture. It'll give you a good idea where the company stands uh, versus itself historically, but also against its peers. And then you put that into context with the whole business and, you know, the future future prospects of the company and so on um so you know you can make a spreadsheet you can be a numbers nerd if you want that's fine if you just want to look at these metrics just to give you a general idea that's i think is a fine approach as well uh but just keep them in mind um so the first one is EBITDA to interest expense so EBITDA is earnings before interest taxes depreciation and amortization and you compare that to the interest expense so the higher the number the better it's basically what amount of money uh, how much money do you cover the interest expense with so if it gets really low if it's like I would say probably like under two 
1.52 depending again on the type of business but that could you know raise some red flags for you because it can be you know it can put the company in a precarious position especially if their you know their revenue goes down the interest on their debt goes up so those are all things to consider uh, but that is something I like to look at especially if there's a it's a company that relies a bit more on debt uh, typically company that companies that will be a bit more asset heavy um, that's something you'll want to look at for them that's a good point. Also, how did you just say EBITDA? Yeah, a little <laughs> French Canadian spin on EBITDA. Yeah, I won't repay. You, you guys can rewind <laughs> thirty seconds. I won't repeat. <laughs> um, okay, so I'm just going to start with something really basic, and it's it's just really true in terms of my process. Is I'm looking at revenue growth rates annualized or on a compound annual growth rate. Three year, five year, ten year, like right on Stratosphere, you can see at the top three year, five year, and then ten year, you can see graphed out the revenue growth rate. And it's just a hurdle rate for me, like in terms of investable opportunities, because at the end of the day, revenue is very telling of the business. Let's let's not kid ourselves. And a company's ability to consistently raise that top line means they have pricing power they are taking more market share and i just want to see that over a long period of time and even recently that it it could be accelerating it could be an opportunity from here because at the end of the day revenue is the entry point for all cash flows into the business right and and i want to see that increasing over time i like to think uh, i have like a 10 percent revenue growth hurdle rate if it's right on the fringe and the company's undervalued, I'll I'll go there. But if I'm paying up for a company, I want to see some high, rev, high revenue growth rate, like fifteen percent hurdle rate. So uh, that's the first one for me. Yeah, that's good, and I like that you mentioned you know over uh, three, five, ten years as well because it's um, it can be misleading, especially with the past year. Just looking at like one or two years because uh, a lot of companies. Uh, you know, revenue were were hit by the pandemic. Yeah, good point. Uh, yeah, so the net cash net cash position is a metric I like to look at. Um, the reason why I like, uh, well, based first of all, net cash. What is it? So it's cash and cash equivalents. I make sure you include short term investments in there versus total debt. So the reason I like to look at that is really gives you a good idea where the uh, how financially stable the company is, especially when it comes to to cash, because sometimes you might see a lot of debt for the company. But again, a company like Apple has a, a large amount of debt on their balance sheet. But if you compare it to their cash position, then you realize that their net cash position is actually really significant um, because they're capitalizing on the low interest rates that they can get by borrowing money. Um, so that's something I really like to look at. You can apply that basically to any type of company, pretty much any sector. Again, obviously compare it with its peers, compare it with itself historically, but it's a, it's a metric that I find is not talked about and really useful. I mean, it is talked about, but not talked about enough. Yeah, yeah and a net cash position is something worth considering. And you know, here we are. Well, here I am bringing up GameStop again. But this was the thesis, right? It wasn't going bankrupt. They had a net cash position. So people who recognize that did quite well. Um, so anyways, 
I'm going to move on to gross profit margin or what we just call gross margins. It's probably the second thing I look at after revenue growth. And the reason for that is it's really telling of the business. Gross margins are very, very telling of the business model. And all things created equal, higher gross margins is much better. And so what gross margins are is the margin for the actual product. Before you add in all like the SG&A, like costs of like overhead to run the business, we're not including that. So it's just like product cost, service cost. To be able to deliver your good or service essentially is is your gross profit margin. So the reason that I like software so much is they have gross margins you know, north of 80%, Autodesk has a 91% gross margin. So their ability to generate cash through through the income statement down to their cash flow statement, they're not taking a big hit on their gross margin there. They're basically flowing it all through. And the reason for that is because it's software. There's not really, really high input costs. They don't have manufacturing input costs and these kinds of things. So I love looking at the gross margin, seeing what kind of business it is. It's super telling of the unit economics of their good or service. So when I say unit economics, I mean just like to deliver one one thing, one good or service. What is the margin inside of that baked in? That's the gross margin. It's a it's a great place to start to understand what the business does and and kind of the economics of of the business itself. Yeah, yeah, that's a great metric that I always look at too. Um, so my next one is still kind of focused on a bit more debt uh, type of. It's not quite a ratio, um, not quite a metric either, but I think it's really important to look at, especially if you're you're going into the deep value state. Uh, but any type of any type of company that relies a lot on debt, I think you have to look at, at this in the financial statements. So what I'm talking about is the debt maturities. Um, so the reason why debt maturities are so important is because, well, first of all, you want to understand where the debt matures, when they'll need to refinance. Um, is it staggered? Um, these are all the things you should be looking at, the current interest rates, but also um, what the potential renewal rates would be and something to keep in mind as well when you're looking at potential renewal rates. Um, is it investment grade in terms of that company? Is it not? Because that will affect the rate that they're getting. So this is something that I think not a lot of people actually look at. And you have a company that uh, could be a great company, but they do have a lot of debt uh, because it's just a capital intensive company. Uh, that's really something you need to look at because if you don't, if the debt is poor, poorly structured or if they have poor, um, they're not investment grade, um, that could be a big hit to the company. It kind of goes back to the the first one I mentioned to the um, EBITDA and to interest expense. That metric could go all out of whack if the debt comes to maturity and they're not able to get a good rate or potentially not be able to refinance depending if they're really in distress or not. Yeah, interesting thing to look at it's important and Simon I'm, I'm wondering what is the what is the KPI there 
sorry to put you on your spot, but like, wh- what am I, if I'm looking at the, the balance sheet, what am I exactly looking at in terms of a number? I mean, it's hard to say, like, specifically. I mean, I would say I would look at it case by case again. I would look at it with his peers, um, like similar companies. What kind of situations are they in? Obviously, if you see a lot of debt on the balance sheet, that's what I'd be looking at. Um, There's usually a section that they will talk about debt, how it's structured in the financial statements. So just make sure you look at that and Again, put it in context, uh, do your research, but that's definitely something I look at. It's pretty easy to identify when you see a company that has a, has a lot of debt. It sure is. All right, moving on. Free cash, compounded annual growth rate longer term. So when I talk about revenue growth rate, I'm checking the three-year, the five-year, even like trailing 12 months. But for free cash flow, I want to see it on a longer term like a median compounded annual growth rate. The company's ability to, over time, generate more free cash than they have before. This company's getting stronger and more relevant and more profitable over time and will continue to do so in the future, something I want to be a part of. So the reason why I'm talking about compounded annual growth rate and median over the longer term is free cash can kind of bounce all over the map depending on what type of company it is too. If they have huge CapEx expenditures, but it's still a great business. I sure I like capital light businesses if all things are equal, but there's some great businesses that are, that are capital intensive. Um, and there's some great businesses that are cyclical in nature. So that's okay. I mean, all, all, all being equal, I, I would want to avoid that, but you know, it's not all equal. So, that's why I'm looking at it on a longer term because it can kind of bounce around. But if you look at it from a median, like 10 year compound annual growth rate on their free cash flow, you'll get an idea of what they're able to do. And uh, I think it's a great place to start. And if you think they can continue to sustain that or at least come close to sustaining that, you'll have a pretty good idea of what you'll be able to do on the return side. Yeah, I mean, I think you guys all know how big of a fan I am of free cash flow in general, so I have uh, you know can't disagree with that. And any like, kind what of is metric, what I is think. earnings, anyways? <laughs> exactly, I think free cash flow, like Braden said, is way more telling. Um, so yeah, you can't go wrong with that. Uh, even like you know, we've talked in the past, you payout ratio when it comes to the dividend compared to the free cash flow. Um, yeah, that's always really important. Um, so speaking of dividend, um, so one that's really important as well if you're looking at dividend companies you want to look at at the dividend growth rate at least over the three five years i would say going 10 years might be sometimes a bit skewed just because you know the company may not be exactly the same as it was 10 years ago so just keep that in mind Um, i think it's great uh, when management actually states a target and has a history of meeting that target so that's one of the big reasons where i'm a big fan of brookfield uh, pretty much, you know, Brookfield Asset Management, uh, BEP, BIP, uh, BPY as well. They usually will come out with a growth rate for their dividend and they'll come out with a bracket, which is extremely smart. I know BEP usually they have about five to nine percent that they want to grow the dividend. And it's great when 
they have that in place. Obviously, you can calculate it yourself, but oftentimes in their conference calls or in the uh, annual reports, they'll actually state that target as well. So just make sure if they do state it, that they actually follow it. It can be a bit of a red flag if uh, management one year or maybe several years, they'll say like, oh yeah, we're planning to increase it, say, 10% and then they just never meet that target, then that actually could be used as a red flag as well. Yeah, good point, especially on the management guidance side. I find companies are quite eager to give dividend growth guidance. And just a little fun fact tidbit here as you were talking, there's a little lesser known Canadian financial company called Equitable Group. And I like looking for things that no one really wants to own. Oh, it's too attached to the housing market, all this kind of stuff. They have promised 25% dividend growth rate, or promise is probably not the right word, but that, that's been their guidance. And they've been spot on. So if you're looking for a financial company with a, you know, their EQ bank, which is the branchless bank, which is growing revenue, like, oh my God, their their statements are absolutely nuts and it trades quite cheaply, like less than 10 times earnings. They're growing the dividend at 25% a year, and they said they will every year till 2025, and they have done that so far. I don't see why they won't be able to meet it. So if you want a fast dividend grower, equitable bank, ticker EQB, something that no one really looks at, it's not really on people's radars, it's got all kinds of weird credit risk and complicated statements, but something to look at. I like I like touching the unsexy stuff that is growing really fast on paper that is just kind of icky to own because of some one reason or, not, or another. So maybe one to look at. Um, okay, so what do I got here? Free cash margin. <laughs> you can see a, a theme in the metrics I'm talking about here, Simone. So, yeah. so far I've talked about growth and margins. I think we're getting a pretty good idea of what uh, type of things I look at. So free cash flow margin. It's another margin metric, but it's really telling of how good the business is in terms of like pure profitability. When I say profitability, I mean actually free cash flow, not not net income margin. And again, I want to look at it at median because free cash flow can bounce around. If there's a big CapEx expenditure, they build a new factory, whatever, that's going to that's gonna hit the their free cash flow, but not their earnings, which is why I look at free cash flow in the first place is because it'll capture some of that capital expenditure, capital intensive businesses. So the free cash flow margin on a, on a median basis, maybe like five, 10 years on a median, will give you a good idea of every dollar that they make on the top line in revenue in sales, how much of it is going to trickle down to that free cash flow line item at the bottom of a, a cash flow statement, which is listed on Stratosphere, by the way. We have free cash flow graph for every company now. And it's a really good way to understand the business. And companies that have really, really high free cash flow margins, like Constellation Software I was talking about, like they're almost touching a 30% free cash flow margin now. That's, uh, that's juicy. And uh, it, 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 it allows the company to reinvest and reward shareholders. So this is kind of a side tangent, but if you have 
growing free cash flow and growing free cash flow margins combined with my next metric, which is return on invested capital. I'm going to get to that. So I mean, you, can, you can take the floor again. But if you combine all of those three things, now you have this absolute compounding machine. And uh, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, and the ones that Braden mentioned, obviously, I look at all the time as well. I went a bit more for metrics that people may not necessarily be looking at all the time. So that's kind of the approach I took. Um, my last metric, I mean, that's one. I don't think we've talked about this one at all before. So I think it's a really, really important metric for a specific type of company and really useless for other type of companies. Um, so this metric is the inventory turn turnaround ratio. So obviously, this applies really well for companies selling goods, uh, such as a retailer. Um, so it's it's quite it's not very complicated to calculate um, so basically you take the uh, for example you could take the cost of goods sold for a year and then you divide it by the average inventory for the year so you average out each quarter what their average inventory is uh, for the year so the higher the number the better since it'll show that the company is turning around its inventory quickly why is that important well because if they're not turning around their inventory quickly that can actually result into discounting the merchandise because let's take uh, something that's really obvious, but let's take a company like Apple or like Samsung that sells smartphones. Well, if they're not turning around their inventory quickly, new models are coming out, so they have to discount the old ones, and then their margins are actually affected by that. And then, obviously, some company, they're coming obsolete over time, or if you have, like, big retailers that we're seeing slowly going towards or crawling towards bankruptcy, well, that's one of the big issues that they're having is they cannot get rid of their inventory, so they have to do some big discounts. So if you're looking at a retailer specifically, this is a metric that you absolutely absolutely should be looking at because if that number is not high compared to its peers um, it can be really problematic and can actually be a sign of really bad things to come for the company especially um, if you start seeing that uh, and the trend goes on and the reason why you want to average it out to throughout the year is because a lot of retailers for example a lot of their sales will come in the fourth quarter so it can be a bit skewed if you're not averaging the um the average inventory for the whole year you went real niche on these i love it good work <laughs> yeah this one though i think it's um it's a really important one um obviously useless for a certain company services company don't look at that but uh, i think it's really important no, it it is, and it, it's it, these are good things to look at. Especially, yeah, if it's a retailer, you got to be looking at inventory metrics. But uh, yeah, good point. All right, let's wrap this up. I got one more, and I kind of hinted at it before, which is some profitability metrics like return on equity, return on invested capital. I've been studying lots of kind of historical big winners what do they have what what does management have you know books like the outsiders and what have certain management teams been able to do and how are they incentivized correctly and return on equity and return on invested capital are always shining stars in terms of these big winners they have sustained 
know, over 20% return on equity is a pretty good hurdle rate for exceptional companies. Um, and the reason for that, as I mentioned before, is companies that are generating cash, they have th- three main options when you generate free cash is pay a dividend, buy back stock. So one, pay a dividend, two, buy back stock, or three, reinvest in the business. And then I guess a fourth one is uh, do M&A, like mergers and acquisitions, buy other companies. So those are kinds of the, the four paths you can take as a manager. And when you are a manager of the company trying to determine how can I maximize return on my invested capital for shareholders, the ones that have really been exceptional compounders over time is they have those high sustained ROIC numbers. And it just makes sense, right? If you pay a fair price overall, you should long-term be able to get similar results in terms of your returns sustained as their return on invested capital or their return on equity, which is you know, net income divided by shareholder equity. So it's important to think about these things. Companies that have sustained over 20% return on equity for, for a long, long time, maybe even higher. If you look at a stock chart, they've probably done pretty well. You know, this, is not, this is not a fluke. These things kind of all make sense. And it's a, it's a good number to look at, and it's very telling of their management's ability to not only make decisions, but if their business is really good, they can reinvest it at higher rates than other other companies. So I love looking at those metrics, and they can be very, very telling of big, big winners. So the reason I say ROE and ROIC is because, for instance, ROE is the most important metric for bank, for a bank investment. I, I can't think of a more important number than if you're comparing... Royal Bank to TD over time is just take the one with the higher ROE probably. Yeah, yeah, probably uh, definitely a good idea. And one last thing that people uh, that companies actually can do with uh, free cash flow is um, pay down debt with it, which is another really good thing, obviously in certain situation, which can really help future profitability. Did I miss that one? I missed that one. Yeah, I think uh, that. Okay. Yeah, they don't do it as often, but uh, yeah, exactly. It's probably the fifth down the list, so I'll, I'll give you a pass on that one. Oh, thanks, man. Appreciate it. <laughs> really appreciate that. So I, I noticed a theme here. I was talking like growth, growth and margins. You're talking about the balance sheet, and then when I miss yeah. something, you're like, oh, they can also pay down debt. <laughs> hey, I like my businesses with not too much Well debt. capitalized. Uh, Siwan, you kill me. Okay. That does it for this week, guys. I love these kinds of episodes because they're, they're easy for us to do, and, and I feel like people learn a lot from these learning about these kinds of metrics. All of them you can find, except for maybe some of the niche ones Simone was talking about, you can all find them on Stratosphere. You go to company search, every single listing in North America. You type in the ticker, Canadian, U.S. stocks, doesn't matter. You see all this stuff. You see their financial statements on a 10-year basis. You know, when you go to an earnings report and you see the year over year, like three months ended or, you know, year over year results, that might be fine. But a lot of these metrics I'm talking about, I want to see it on a 10 year basis. So 
That's why I built Stratosphere is to see 10-year financial statements, all the metrics graphed out, and you can get a much better picture of the business than just a, you know, three months ended or one year. Or even on some of these other sites, they give you three years of, of data. Sure, that might be okay, but I need to know more. So that's why I built Stratosphere. If you go to getstockmarket.com, you can go on there, sign up. You don't even need a credit card. And you can see all the metrics you could possibly want. We will see you guys next week. Take care. Bye-bye. The Canadian investor is not to be taken as investment advice. Braden or Simon may own securities mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment decisions.